So I guess Stephanie changed the theme. I guess I'm supposed to preach on my birthday. So I'm just going <laughs> to talk about that for a while. No, sorry. Thank you for laughing at my lame dad joke on my birthday. That's the best gift of all. Um, I want to know if you know what recent event this is a photo of. So if you think you know, raise your hand. I might call on you. OK, I'm just kind of pulling the audience. Who do we got? OK. Who wants, to, who wants to go ahead and yell out what the event was? Under two hours. Elliot Kipchoge, I, the, there's a, a very strong African theme going on. Uh, Elliot Kipchoge, the uh, Kenyan um, marathon runner, best marathon runner in the world, recently ran in Vienna. He ran the marathon distance in one hour, 59 minutes, and 40 seconds. It was like that barrier of like, can anyone ever get under two hours? No. There's, Rumors, if you ever ran that distance under two hours, you would just die right afterwards. Um, and so he, he assured us all that he's still alive, and so that's a good thing. So what does Eliud Kipchoge do more than you do? Are there things that you think <laughs> Eliud Kipchoge might do more than you? Can I get any, any, huh? Run. He probably runs more than anyone here. He runs about 140 miles a week. Uh, so I think that's more, that's more than me. That's probably more than you. Anything else? What else do you think Elliot Kipchoge might do more than you? Eat? He might eat more than you do, but he might not. He's a pretty small man. What else? Train. Train, a train, yeah. Mostly he just runs for training. Stephanie got it. He sleeps more than you do, I think. He sleeps 10 hours a day. He'll sleep 8 hours at night, and then he'll take a nice 2-hour nap. Elie Kipchoge, in order for him to absorb all the running training he does, he has to recover really well. And that means he has to sleep and he has to rest. Uh, I was reading that the best marathon and long distance runners in the world, uh, they'll sometimes have a training camp where they'll all get together, they'll run really hard, and then the rest of the time, it's kind of like a lounging competition. There's groups that'll have like their Fitbit set and there's a competition to see who can take the least amount of steps outside of their running uh, the rest of the day. So they do whatever they can to rest and recover. Sometimes when we want to do something that we're not able yet to do, we have to do something unexpected to get there. We have to do things that are maybe different than you think. And it works, uh, it works in running, it works in our spiritual life as well. That sometimes when we want to see ourselves transform more into the people that God, we know God's created us to be, but we can't quit being crabby, or we can't seem to love, or we can't get a hold on God's word, sometimes just doing the thing that we want to get better at isn't all that there is in the solution. It certainly is part of the solution but it's not necessarily all of the solution. Another famous and extraordinary African man is St. Antony. St. Antony uh, was an Egyptian uh, who lived from 251 to 356. That was a while ago. Um, 
uh, the quote that's there, you might not be able to read it. It says, a time, he said, a time is coming when men will go mad. And when they see someone who is not mad, they will attack him, saying, you are mad. You are not like us. So Antony grew up a rich kid. Uh, he grew up with rich parents. But this is how St. Athanasius, a uh, contemporary of his, summarized his life uh, after Anthony died. He said this, It was as if he were a physician given to Egypt by God. For who went to him grieving did not return rejoicing. Who went in lamentation over his dead and did not immediately put aside his sorrow? Who visited while angered and was not changed to affection? What poor person met him in exhaustion who did not, after hearing and seeing him, despise wealth and console himself in poverty? What monk coming to him in discouragement did not become all the stronger? What young man coming to the mountain and looking at Antony did not at once renounce pleasures and love moderation? Who came to him tempted by a demon did not gain relief? And who came to him in distress in his thoughts and did not find his mind calm? Antony, by the end of his life, uh, became the kind of person who one encounter with would change your life. It could change, uh, it administered the presence of God to you in a way uh, that was remarkable. I think some of us know those kinds of people or have had the encounter with a person uh, where it's really kind of hard to place what it is, but there's a certain holiness uh, that comes through, a certain love, uh, attention to you in that moment that's transformative. That's the kind of person that Antony was. And you may be surprised to know that Antony's love for people, his gift to see transformation, to encounter people deeply, didn't come from a psychology degree. That's great, though. Uh, or thousands of hours of supervised practice with people. Actually, Antony's deep love came from his time spent in solitude. When Antony's parents died, he was a rich kid, remember, he became an heir at a young age. And when he heard the words of Jesus to the rich young ruler that said, go and sell all your possessions, give money to the poor, and come follow me, Antony heard it literally and directly towards him. So he sold his all, all his possessions, and he went out to the Egyptian desert to pursue a life of solitude, prayer, and poverty. And this was the original story of somebody doing something like that. There weren't monks before him. Antony is considered kind of the father of monks, right? He's a, he just went out in solitude to pursue uh, experience of prayer and just being with Jesus, and it transformed him. We're in a sermon series that's exploring some of the core values that we believe God's placed in the life of West Hills. Uh, they're values that come from Scripture uh, that all of God's people are called to, but we see them particularly at this time uh, bubbling up in the life of West Hills Covenant Church. And I, I'll read this to you. I love this graphic, um, but you can maybe only read the words belonging and becoming. That's kind of the core theme. 
Uh, and then we're looking at the, the themes of being a genuine, multi-ethnic, intergenerational, contemplative, and courageous church that loves mercy and does justice in our world. So far, we've gone through uh, genuine, multi-ethnic, and intergenerational in our sermon series. Uh, And some of that vision, we've probably realized, is a bit aspirational. Uh, It definitely defines who we are. It defines what what it means uh, to follow Jesus here. But we also know that as we look at what it means to be truly a genuine person, Many of us were convicted uh, that we're not where we want to be. We realize that we want to present ourselves as being put together, that we want to come across as successful. We realize we need some becoming and being genuine. Some of us were perplexed by the weeks that we spent on multi-ethnicity, We grew up in Christian spirituality that emphasized a relationship with Jesus, but we're still not sure what to do with this idea that that the gospel is about all nations and all peoples being created in God's image and coming to, coming, uh, to fully express God in our world. We're not sure exactly what that means for our lives individually. We're not totally sure where we're going or how to get there, even as a church. And if that's you, uh, you can trust me that I've been in your shoes. <laughs> the first time that was introduced as an aspect of my Christian faith, that I was confused and perplexed and wondering if I was in the right room. Uh, but it became this part heartbeat of, of what I see God's Spirit doing in our church and in our world in my life that's brought fruit Uh, and transformation. For some of us, when we explored the theme of being in an intergenerational church, it was a stretch for us. Remember last week, if you were here, we sat at tables uh, and we tried to be in all generations. You got pipe cleaners that were the color of the rainbow, uh, different ones for different ages. It made some of us uncomfortable to uh, be identified as the age that we were. It made some of us uncomfortable uh, to try to engage with, uh, in conversation and in fellowship with people who are much older or much younger than us. Some of us just engaging in conversation is uncomfortable anyway. <laughs> Not me. I love to talk. Um, when these values, when these aspirations uh, get lifted up, Most of us can agree, that's great, Um, but we're not sure if that's us. And when we try to live into what we know God is calling and creating us to be, we realize we hit a barrier. It's as if Elliot Kipchoge was trying to run the fastest marathon ever and just kept running more and more. Okay, 140 miles isn't going to do it. What about 210? What about 300 a week? I'm just going to keep going. I probably should sleep less and run more. And we all know that that's not going to get the results that, that he wants. I really think that this, uh, this value of contemplative spirituality is part of the fuel uh, that's going to allow us to grow into who God's called us to be. 
Now, I want to be clear that the gospel is about your belonging before your becoming, right? That the gospel is all about that Jesus sees you where you're at and you are welcomed into the kingdom and forgiven. That you don't have to be anything. You don't even have to become anything to be loved and part of God's kingdom. But once you get a taste of God's kingdom, once you get a taste of how good it is to be truly loved as you are, you're going to start becoming transformed into a loving person of God. And you're going to want to see God's kingdom of peace and justice and love and mercy well up in you more. Uh, You're going to be a little bit more uncomfortable with cranky, selfish you, right? You're going to want to see something better because you know it can be better because you're beginning to know Christ, God revealed in Christ. For our purposes, we're going to talk about contemplation as intentional movement, kind of away from the normal material productiveness or engagement with people uh, in order to commune with God. Stephanie had a good thought about this uh, a couple mornings ago. She said, it's not me time. Contemplative time isn't me time. It's about being with somebody. It's just that it's about being with God. It's about being with our creator. For some of us, uh, this feels like the most natural thing in the world. Like That's what I want to do. For some of us, you have no idea what I'm talking about when I talk about being with God. Uh, which is okay. You're used to the more active lifestyle. And I think with all of these values that we're talking about, it's important to realize that different ones are going to express themselves differently in each of us. Uh, It doesn't mean that our weaknesses aren't areas to grow, but it does mean that we can appreciate when we see somebody else who's great at being contemplative, even when we feel like we're more drawn to uh, pursuing justice or the multi-ethnic kingdom. There's four things that I want us to think about uh, that contemplation, contemplative worship, or contemplative spirituality does uh, in us when we involve ourselves in it. It involves temptation and refining, It involves communion with Christ, and it produces a sense of confidence in the midst of chaos. And it produces a heart of love for others. So if you're really big on taking the four-point sermon notes, those are the four points, and uh, I'll try to highlight them as we go through. So contemplation involves some temptation and refining. It's the... It's the removal of this kind of false self and an entering in to a true self. One of the first things in the legend of St. Antony, uh, the history of, of how he went through life and saw himself, his transformation into a person who you knew you were loved by, you experienced the love of Christ through uh, as you went. One of the first things he went through was temptation. So he went into the desert and by himself with no money and not enough food or water. And guess what? It was hard. It was hard in a lot of ways. 
He doubted whether that was what he was really called to. Uh, he went through all these temptations and, and his experience of it, he says that he experienced these demons attacking him and tempting him. Uh, he couldn't get his mind off of uh, the, the life that he left behind, wondering if he'd made a horrible mistake. It involved temptation. Uh, and so often when we finally get alone with ourselves, uh, when we say we want to take a journey of, of knowing God better by going to that place in our house or by going up on that mountain like uh, Lynette was talking about, we get there and we realize our thoughts are out of control. We realize that we may be consumed with um, frustrations or with griefs that have been so long buried that it seems like, oh, I was here for this great experience with God, but all I see is kind of the ick of myself. And that's what Antony experienced first. When we talk about contemplation, I'm glad that Lynette mentioned Jesus' pattern. One of the first uh, acts that Jesus did, and kind of every time before Jesus took a major step of ministry, a major step in fulfilling his call as Savior, in loving the people around us, around him and loving us, he would go off by himself. And the ma most major part of that was in his temptation. Just after his baptism, he was led, into the Holy, led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. He was there 40 days and 40 nights, and he ate nothing. The temptations, there were three main ones. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. He's hungry. Just the, the daily physical attention to his body was a temptation. Uh, and Jesus responds, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone. Then he took him to a high place, the devil did, and he said to him, I'll give you all the authority and the splendor that's been given to me, and I can give it to you. Just worship me, and it will be yours. The devil appeals to his vanity, and I think we're all tempted by that. We're tempted by, by just an obsession with meeting our physical needs, uh, an obsession with accumulating enough so that we'll be secure and provided for. Uh, we're also tempted by, by this need for reputation or for splendor to rise above everyone else. That's the second temptation. And then finally, there's this temptation of spectacle where uh, the devil says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from this highest point of the temple. Uh, and, and Jesus uh, responds, do not put the Lord your God to the test. God uses these times of solitude, these times of contemplation, these times where we're out of control in our thoughts to start to strip away some of the false self of who we are. And it can be scary to, to wade into that encounter, but when we do, uh, we may not get it at first, but we'll be transformed. I remember as a college student, one of my first... Uh, explorations in trying to get alone and spend some quality time away with God, to commune with God. I went out into the Santa Monica Mountains. I was going to fast and pray for like 24 hours, and it was terrible. I didn't bring enough water. 
my thoughts were out of control. I was, I, I, I thought, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray and commune with God, but it didn't go the way that I thought that first time. And the what the main thing that I walked away from that realizing was just my weakness, right? And I realized a little bit more that uh, of the things that I was obsessed with, the things that dominated my thoughts. That was it. That's all I got. It didn't really change them right away. Um, but as I continued to put myself in a place of God's presence, um, refining started to happen. When Jesus had gone through this temptation, he he arrived at, it's interesting to think of Jesus learning, um, but the scripture does say later on in the New Testament that Jesus learned obedience. These things that Jesus did were actually formative in a way that allowed him to do the next thing. So when Jesus returned from this fasting, from this testing, he had a clear sense of who he was. And that's when he first comes home And he steps into the synagogue of his hometown and he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then when he finished reading, he rolled back the scroll, gave it to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Having gone through the fires of temptation, Jesus had this clarity about who he was. He knew he was the one sent to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to bring freedom and sight. When you go off to contemplation, you're not going to come back with the exact same reality, right? Uh, But there uh, there is this dynamic where contemplation helps us understand who we really are. It helps us be comfortable in our own skin as people created by God. Uh, the Trappist monk, uh, I think he's Trappist, Thomas Merton, a 20th century monk, uh, wrote, for the contemplative, there is no cogito. This is a playoff Descartes. Uh, there's no cogito, I think, and no ergo, therefore, but only sum, I am. Not in the sense of futile assertion of our individuality. I have a picture. There he is. That's Thomas Merton. Not in the futile sense of an assertion of our individuality is ultimately real, but in the humble realization of our mysterious being as persons in whom God dwells with infinite sweetness and inalienable power. You may have had uh, the privilege of having an experience by yourself where you were able to just be and to know in God's presence that your being uh, is enough. That there's an inalienable, infinite sweetness and power in just being created by God and enjoying the life that he's given you. Uh, a year ago, I went on, a, I had the privilege and, and made it a priority to go on a, a five-day um, retreat of prayer in the Wallowa Mountains. 
things. And I was braced for this kind of thing that I'd gone through in college, where I'm going to be tempted, and everything's going to be hard and difficult. And I just had this wonderful time where I was kind of running through the mountains and enjoying life and, and enjoying God's presence. And I was waiting for some profound insight about my ministry or about what God's calling me to next. Um, but what I kept coming away with uh, was, was that God has made this for me, delights in me, and that, that my enjoyment of this moment is enough, that it's good to just be. No cogito, no I think, no ergo, no therefore. There doesn't have to be a link, but just I am. I am with God, and that's enough. I think this is summed up uh, most beautifully in one of Eliot's former favorite books, I Am a Bunny. Have you guys, anyone read I Am a Bunny? If you want to go on the more light contemplative side. Uh, this bunny that Richard Scarry draw, draws, it, the way it starts is, uh, I am a, my name is, no, I am a bunny. My name is Nicholas. I live in a hollow tree. And then it's just page after page of, of Nicholas doing things like this. In the summer, I like to lie in the sun. I think it says, and watch the clouds go by, right? That, that Nicholas is fine just being, just enjoying what is. Uh, and it's helpful for us sometimes in all the striving and the struggle uh, to remember that being is a gift and that we are loved and we can receive as we are. It can be hard, right? Because we see a world full of challenges and strife and struggles. We think we need to go meet every need and we're called to meet needs. Uh, but we do that most powerfully when we're connected to a God who's meeting our needs. It's really hard to value somebody else as good enough no matter who they are, where they are, or what they're doing, if you don't value yourself as good enough to receive love no matter who you are, where you are, or what you're doing. Does that make sense? We have to stay connected to who God says we are. I'm going to go faster through the rest of these. Contemplation involves... So that's contemplation involves this refining that comes, there's a temptation and a refining that boils us down to the essential of who we are in relationship to Christ. Uh, and, and that's probably good enough. Maybe I should have made the sermon just on that, so I'll try to, to kind of do that. Um, it also involves communion with Christ. I think of Mary and Martha as an example of this. Mostly Mary. Sorry, Martha. Uh, in Luke 10, verses 38 through 42, we get this story, of, another story of Jesus. It says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. 
where he's just sitting having communion uh, with Jesus, just sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening. This is a sentiment that's echoed throughout Scripture of people just taking the time to delight in who God is. Psalm 119 is the longest uh, chapter in the Bible, and it's this um, acrostic. It, has, it starts uh, a section with each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, but it's just this ongoing celebration of God, who God is, and the word of God, the law of God. Uh, a few verses, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. A few verses, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. And the book of Psalms is this example uh, of, it's the, the hymn book of ancient Israel. It's an example of just coming to behold God, to remember God, to worship God. This is going to fuel uh, not only an individual personal piety, but this is going to fuel our community. Uh, in a way that transforms us into who God has called us to be. So contemplation involves communion with Christ. It also creates confidence in the midst of chaos. Has anybody had an experience where something crazy is going on uh, and somebody comes in with a calm, clear voice? And a calm, clear thought. Ruth has. Right? Have we seen that? Do we want to be that kind of person? Uh, the practice of contemplative spirituality creates that. Uh, Psalm 46 is a good example. It says, God is our refuge and our strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, though the mountains fall in the heart of the sea. I've never been through a crisis that bad. Though the waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging... Oh, wait, we get this one. Nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he's brought to earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He has the power to do the things that we want to see done. And he says, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. It doesn't mean to be completely disengaged with what's going on in the world, but to know there's a power uh, that you're connected to that is stronger than all the chaos you see around you, whether it's personal or political or environmental, right? No matter what it is, to remember in the chaos to be still and know that God is God. I'll be exalted among the nations and exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Contemplation creates confidence in the midst of chaos. Uh, and, and contemplation can transform us to truly love others. We saw it in the life of Antony, but another uh, saint that we see that in is in Mother Teresa, uh, who in 1946, she was uh, a common nun who had an experience what she later described as the call within the call. Uh, when she traveled for an annual retreat, 
Uh, she knew that she was to leave the convent and help the poor while living among them. It was an order. To fail would have been to break the faith. So many of us know uh, Mother Teresa as the founder of the House for the Dying, uh, that she would just spend countless hours with people who had hopeless uh, terminal illnesses. And rather than let them dry, die on the street alone, she would bring them in uh, and care for them the best that she could as they were dying. Um, what a lot of us don't know is what she saw as uh, the primary way that she was able to do this day in and day out, year in and year out, was through this active life of contemplative prayer. Uh, she said that she started prayer asking God for things, but that as she prayed, it moved more into uh, less of her talking and more of God talking. And then it moved into something more like just beholding each other. She says, in the silence of the heart, God speaks. If you face God in prayer and silence, God will speak to you. Then you will know that you are nothing. It is only when you realize your nothingness, your emptiness, that God can fill you with himself. Souls of prayer are souls of great silence, she says. She says silence gives a new outlook on everything. We need silence to be able to touch souls. The essential thing is not what we say, but what God says to us and through us. In that silence, he will listen to us. There he will speak to our soul, and there we will hear his voice. Contemplation transforms us into a life of true love for others. This practice of withdrawing for prayer uh, was the last thing that Jesus did before uh, his crucifixion. Before he was arrested, he spent a night in Gethsemane uh, communing with the Father, praying, sweating blood, uh, anxious, but knowing that he needed that connection in order to fuel his obedience, his love of pouring out his life for all humanity. Where's God calling you in your journey of becoming? Are you finding yourself at your limits? Are you finding yourself uh, tired or limited or cranky, less able to be consistently what you like, what you want to be, what you know God's welling up for you? It's at those times that I know I need to reconnect to my practice of contemplative spirituality. Maybe God's calling you to your own little desert, uh, whether it's a place in your house or whether it's a mountain nearby, whether it's for three minutes or for three days, uh, where you can put aside time to be in God's presence. There's so many ways to do it, and Stephanie's going to teach us all of them next week. Um, can you put your, begin to put yourself in that place? Allow God to lead you to those places of refreshment, um, knowing and trusting that the deep love that you want to offer to the world comes from this place of being able to be with God, to receive God's grace on yourself so that you can give with deep love to others. Let's pray.
God, we are uh, learned in uh, scrambling to get what we need. We are studied in uh, resentment and fear. God, we're groomed for panic. Uh, God, would you uh, extend your grace to us? Would you make us lie down in green pastures? Would you lead us to refreshing waters where we drink deeply of your presence in a way that allows us to know you, in a way that allows us to see transformation in our lives and in our world? In Jesus' name we pray.